0: Matthew chapter 2, we're going to spend this week and the next two weeks, God willing, in this passage dealing with what is essentially the first act of worship in the New Covenant era. Christ has come, and all the worship that was carried on in the old temple and the tabernacle before that is about to change It's about to change in a remarkable way, and this passage shows us the first of those changes, and with it, it brings us, it informs us how we are to worship today. Worship doesn't always come naturally. Uh, There's an interesting passage, you don't have to turn there, it's in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because we don't have a quote-unquote sacrificial system in the New Covenant, we can get the idea that there's to be no sacrifices in our worship for the New Testament believer. And Peter there is telling us, well, that's not quite right. In fact, there are spiritual sacrifices to be offered up. And it's good for us to understand what that looks like, because they're not the kinds of things that will, um, as many people think, if I give this sacrifice, then I can use this to manipulate God to get what I want. It's not that kind of thing at all. And unfortunately, religion can get that way. I don't know about you, but I know for myself at various times, I've tried to bribe God with uh, behavior changes. Lord, if I do this, will you do that? If I don't do this anymore, and I look for uh, return of physical blessings or material blessings in exchange for things that I give him. And that's not the process. That's not worship. That's idol worship. That's where the root of idolatry functions. I do A and God responds with B. And that's not what's happening here. And it really gets teased out for us in a remarkable way in this opening passage here in Matthew chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is your currency? What is most valuable to you? Everyone consciously or unconsciously, has that one thing which, when it's all said and done, is the most valuable thing to them. Your currency may, in fact, be currency. maybe may be money. I don't know. Not that there aren't other things that we think are important. We do. But there's this one thing that seems to nudge its way up internally in each one of us, That is, above all the rest, what we count most important. And when it's all said and done, that is our personal currency. That's what I trade in. We value everything else in comparison to that. And this happens not only with us individually. It happens in the small society of the home. Each home has those things that you value most as a family, And it happens on a larger scale, it happens in a community, it happens in a city, it happens nationally, there are things that that as a nation we put forward as those things that are important to us, and it eventually even happens globally, but mankind as a whole has trades in all different kinds of currency. The U.S. used to base its money on what was called the gold standard, the value of money was tied to the value of the amount of gold we possessed, and that's why we have stockpiles of it in Fort Knox, if it's still there. I have no idea anymore. And while that's no longer the case, we don't work on the gold standard anymore, it's still fairly universal, uh, at least if if you listen to um, to the guys on TV who do all the ads, that gold has a global value which everyone recognizes and that we think of wealth as invariably tied to gold that's it it just holds it occupies that place in our mind from ancient times uh, as far back as you can go gold was considered precious and valuable and an abundance of it was the supreme sign of of wealth and so it's no surprise then as we get to this account in Matthew chapter 2 that when these wise men show up to worship Jesus they offer him Three gifts. Uh, These magi from the east. They come to find and worship Jesus after his birth and to honor him as the king of Jews. And above that, they didn't just come to honor him as king of the Jews. If you look carefully at verse 2, it notes that they had come not just to honor him, but to worship him. To worship him. What does that mean? What does does that really mean to worship God, to worship Christ, the incarnate God? How do we look at that in this first case, and how does that find its way into where we live and what we do today? So they brought him these gifts. And these gifts were both tokens of honor and gifts that were acts of worship. This is going to be a sermon about giving, but it's not about your money. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. The truth is, we don't know how many there were. This famous picture from Durer, from the 16th century shows three wise men. We don't know if there were three. We only know there were more than one because the words are all in the plural. Because there are three gifts... We've imagined that there were three wise men. We don't really know. And we don't precisely know where they came from. The Bible doesn't give us all that information. Well, there's some good theories and some reasonable conjectures, but we don't know for certain where they came from. We don't know how long they traveled to get there, although we have a little bit of a clue that would lead us to believe that Jesus was probably somewhere near two years of age when they finally arrived. The text says that they came into the house where he was, not to the manger where he was. And you can tell by Herod's response, when he heard from the wise men that there had been one born who was king of the Jews, he went out and he had all the children from two years of age and under in the area of Bethlehem slaughtered. So there's this two-year window that's probably uh, pretty reasonable to assume at this point. But what's brought before us here to consider, what I want us to consider this week, next week, and the following week, is the nature of the worship that these men entered into at this point in time. And in it, they brought gifts that were fit for royalty. This was a portrait that Napoleon had painted of himself when he was emperor. He likes his royalty. He's got that august appearance, doesn't he? You'd never know. He was just a little squirt, little five-foot-two guy. But he's looking very regal and very royal, and he's covered with fur, and there's gold around him, and boy, that's a handsome picture. It might be what turned Josephine to really, really love on him. I don't know. But they brought gifts that would have been typically given to royalty. Gold and frankincense and myrrh were common gifts that were given to Royalty. And these are what those three might have looked like, although it's not exactly what we would have assumed. But this was probably a frankincense kind of thing. You can still get frankincense today. I I looked online. I might buy some. You can still get gold. William Devane says you can. And I don't know about myrrh, but I I suppose it's out there. I'd like to... uh, figure that out at some point. I think I need myrrh in my life, although I'm not sure why. But I want to spend this week and the next two weeks considering each of those gifts in the context of worship. So this week we're going to center on the gold portion. And here's the main thing I want us to consider. This is the principle that I think emerges from here and that we need to pay attention to, especially this time of the year. Do we bring What is most precious to us, what our currency is, in our worship to Christ as King. Do you and I bring what is most precious to us? Now that's going to look very differently to each one of us. And the question is, do we bring it as an act of worship to Him? We'll unpack that. Do we honor Him in seeing the things that we value so highly, are in fact only tokens of true wealth. That they're only representative of his value, and therefore they're worthy to be presented to him in return. For instance, in this first one, which we're going to look at, gold, in the act of presenting gold to Jesus, the wise men are only returning to him what's considered valuable out of the creation which he had already given to us in the first place. They didn't materialize gold, they didn't invent gold, they didn't get it themselves. God gave it to us, and they return it to him in this act of worship. And it's given to us not to be considered supremely valuable in itself. None of the things that God gives us are meant to be supremely valuable in themselves, but they are meant to be foretastes of the true, of the authentic. And when we move off of that platform, we make a mess of things. And we see them restoring this in a wonderful way. Gold in its purity and its unending, its enduring quality, its usefulness, its beauty, and its weightiness. And that weightiness is important. The Old Testament word for glory came from a root word that meant weighty, substantive, worth something. Gold is heavy. It's worth something. And But these are all meant to be types and shadows of a real but merely token representations of the glory and the value of the Christ who made them. In John 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. It's astounding. And so if, as Psalm 19.1 notes, that the heavens were made to declare the glory of God, then all of creation is meant to reveal the truths and the glories which are in him. And gold becomes a very fitting representation of his value, his beauty, his everlasting, his enduring glory, his weightiness, and his purity, among other things. I'm sure we could put others in there. Let me read you just a quick portion. I'll put it on the screen with you too from one of my favorite authors. Uh, This is John Flavel. He was a 17th century Puritan. This is out of volume one of his works. He says, It is a special consideration to enhance the love of God in giving Christ. That in giving Him, He gave the richest jewel of His cabinet. A mercy of the greatest worth And most inestimable value. Heaven itself is not so valuable and precious as Christ is. He is the better half of heaven. And so the saints account him. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? Ten thousand thousand worlds, said someone. As many worlds as angels can number, and then as a new world of angels can multiply would not all be the bulk of a balance to weigh Christ's excellency, His love and His sweetness. Oh, what a fair one. What a holy one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Christ. Put the beauty of 10,000 paradises like the Garden of Eden into one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet, it should be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. And yet, now for God to bestow the mercy of mercies, the most precious thing in heaven or on earth, upon poor sinners. And as great, as lovely, as excellent as his son was, yet not to account him too good to bestow upon us, what manner of love is this? Someone am going to ask you, what's your currency? What is it that you trade in? And how, as we see in this act of the wise men, how can that inform us in our worship? What's your gold? Not what's in your safe or what's in your wallet, but what is really your gold? What is it that you really place the premium on? What is most valuable to you? And does bringing that back to him in worship, offering it up to him, form a part of your own worship as you came here today? Privately, publicly, what does that look like? To some, you know this, life itself is the most valuable thing of all. People say, this is it, this is the great gift, life, and if that's you, have you considered that all life comes from him and that he himself is life and that therefore your own life is the most fitting form of. Of worship to return to him? To give him your life? Do you bring that to him today? And to bring it, and this is an important point, to dispose of as he sees fit? Or do you want to keep it for yourself? You see, the thing that was important in that worship when the three wise men, if there were three, when they arrived there, when they gave him their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh, they gave it to him so that he could do with it as he pleased. That's the way worship works. It's giving him our gold to use as he sees fit and no longer put the constraints on it for ourselves. For Jesus, this was going to take on a very practical import in a short time. No sooner had they given the gifts than they heard that Jesus' life was in danger and Joseph and Mary flee with Jesus to Egypt. How do they finance their little trip? With gold and frankincense and myrrh. How do they sustain themselves in this meantime on gold and frankincense and myrrh? These were valuable, royal things. And so it took very practical import at that point. But the reality is that when you give something to Him, you give it to Him and say, it's yours to do with as you see fit. And I take my hands off of it. Now, has anyone ever given you a gift and the idea of giving you the gift was to manipulate you? There were strings attached? Do we do that with our worship? Do we give him our worship with strings attached? So that, again, it's manipulative. I can tell you whether or not you worship out of manipulation or whether you're actually giving to him by whether or not you feel cheated when he doesn't give you what you were hoping for. Oh, I've been attending church, I've been reading my Bible, I've been worshiping you, I've been serving you, and it hasn't bought me anything. Oh, then you weren't worshiping, you were investing. Two very different concepts. You were putting a down payment on what you hoped would come around. That's not the way worship works. It's this free giving Remember, life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Life itself is only a foretaste of the eternal life that he bestows on us. And so isn't it fitting then to surrender our lives to him now in worship and in anticipation of the eternal life that he will usher us into the fullness of all that when he comes? What's your life? And what are you demanding of him in exchange for it? Or are you at his disposal to move you as he sees fit, to, to use your life as he sees fit? Health might be for you. I, and lots of people, I've heard it said over the times, if you have health, you have everything. You know, at least you have your health. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says health itself is only a foretaste. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Our health here is fleeting. It's temporary. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Have you considered that the health you have here is only a precursor to the resurrection if you're a believer? And can't we entrust our health to Him now in worship and recognize that it's but a shadow of the inviolable health to come? We worship Him by trusting our health to Him. Offer it to Him as a gift of worship. I've found in the last year this has been extremely important for myself personally. I always... Liked my strength. I liked my energy. I liked being able to do what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, for as long as I wanted to do it. And now suddenly I'm not in that place. And will I then take my health and say, you know what? This is yours to dispose of as you see fit. What will be best in growing me in your image? In changing me into the likeness of Christ? yours. Take it. Let me offer it to you as an act of worship. Now, that may not be the most important thing to me, but it's an important thing, and it needs to be offered up in worship. It's a spiritual sacrifice. Maybe it's family. Maybe that's your gold. That's what's valuable to you, family. Got to have family. But aren't our families precious to us here? And they should be. And as real and as lovely and glorious as they are, are they not only still a prefiguring of what's to come when we're with him in eternity? And so can't we trust him with ours here and now and offer them to his service, looking to wonder at our adoption in Christ and the fullness of the family that's yet to come? This, this is what we're told, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some of you here, some of you kids, you probably wish you were born into another family at times. Wish I was in a family where they had more fun. Where they did more stuff I like to do. Where I get to do whatever I want to do. Matter of fact, I'm thinking about that right now. I might like that too. Maybe your family isn't what you'd like it to be, but have you brought it to Him And offered it to him in worship and say, you know what, I can trust this to you. Because the token, the family that I might have here, is only a sip of the cup that I'll drink to the full when I reach you in glory. And so if my family's a little broken here, if it's not the way I'd like it here, I can treat it as what it is, just a token and an evidence of what you have prepared for me in perfection when I'm with you. In eternity. And so in 1 John, we're reminded to see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. Some of us, even as adults, are still trying to gain our Father's love and approval. Your earthly father is broken. You may never have it. But He's told you you can have His. And will you give that to Him? Will you trust Him with it? Will you let Him dispose of that as He sees fit? Is that okay? We should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we'll be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. And yet, we will spend all our time fretting about what we didn't get, what was broken in this life, which was only meant to be a token in the first place, rather than rejoicing in the glory of what is ours in perfection and promise to us. And he says, give that to me. Amazing. What What a freedom there comes in that and how we bind up our lives because our pennies are rusty rather than knowing that there's eternal gold in the heavenlies, who is Christ Himself. How about joy or happiness? For some of you, that's the eternal pursuit. I just want to be happy. I just want to be joyful. I just want want to be able to, to really enjoy life and enjoy myself. And aren't all the joys and the happinesses of this life just fleeting and fractured? And will we then make ourselves miserable over their fleeting and incomplete nature here when the fullness of joy and eternal happiness is to be found only in Him? Ought we not then to bring that back to Him and trust Him with it? Isn't it worship to look to Him for those things rather than to try and find satisfaction in the mere samples of it that we have in this life? Luke 2, at the announcement of Jesus' coming, It says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping their watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And where's that located? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's joy. I have a Savior who will deliver me from the darkness and the brokenness of this world. Who will atone for my sin and all that I've done in my rebellion against the living God and restore me to Him that I might be His child. And yet we chase the tokens of it in this life rather than place it in His hands and say, I worship you with this. What's valuable to me is joy. And I'm going to commit that to you and let you dispose your joy in anticipation of the day when I know it will be full. Oh, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus said, so abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. He has fullness of joy for you, but don't look for it in the tokens. Look for it in Him. It's to be had. Or in Jude 24 and 25, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. You will have that joy, Christian, more than you could possibly imagine in this life, but it's not meant to be had in this life. Oh, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Oh, Amen. That's worth how about contentment? That is the picture of contentment, isn't it? That was sky took that of me last night when I got <laughs> home and was on the couch. He's the god of contentment. Augustine, in his confessions, wrote that famous phrase that so many of us know, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But you're wanting contentment here now, in its fullness. But any contentment you can have here is only a taste. It can't be the full thing. It's it's not meant to be. Just as the gold that they brought to him was only meant to be a token of his value, of of what riches looks like, not meant to be the real thing. And so in Hebrews 4, we read, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a place of, of complete contentment and rest. For whoever has entered into God's rest is also rested from his works, as God did from his. And so let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so no one may fall through the same sort of disobedience. Or Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or in Deuteronomy, the promise of them entering the promised land. He says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of Brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. But all these two were just tokens. They weren't meant to be the end. Just a picture. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land. He has given you a token. What's to come? There's no permanent contentment here. Only sips before the the fountain is fully ours. Give that quest for contentment to Him in worship. Bring it to him and offer it to him as a spiritual sacrifice. Place it in his hands and let him meet it out as he sees fit at the right time. There's a fullness yet to come. For some of you, it's security. Cortona's famous painting of the guardian angel just watching over a child, I think is so emotive there. How often climate here in the u.s how we fret over a secure future but isn't the future wrapped up in his eternal plan and can't we trust him with that and so present our future and its security to him even now can't we lay that at his feet rejoicing in the tokens we already have as promises of what will be eternal and unshakable in him And so in Hebrews 13, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. What do I have? Well, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's some security. And so we can confidently say the Lord, and I will not fear what man can do to me. Battery going out, John, is that what's causing that? Can we pause for a technical break? Now I am energized. Uh, yeah, there we go. I feel secure now. <laughs> How about John 10? My sheep are my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There's security. There's security. If you're not a Christian here today, you can't know that security. If you are a believer here today, you have that security already, whether you recognize it or not. Amazing. How about freedom? That's... Amazingly poignant this week with the passing of Nelson Mandela, who fought so hard for freedom in his native South Africa, good, bad, or indifferent in his methods, sometimes referred to as a terrorist, other times as a freedom fighter. I won't make that judgment. What I'll make is that he gave his life for human, earthly freedom. But as precious as that is, is it not infinitely dwarfed by freedom from the penalty and power and presence of sin. Years ago, when the quartet was together, we got to sing at a church on the other side of the city. Uh, We finished our concert that night, and a man came up to introduce himself to us. His name was Roy Keyes. And he said, uh, I want you to know what's happening with me. He said, I gave my heart to Christ tonight. I was born again And uh, he said, I came here with my wife, and she has my bags packed. They're in the car. He said, I'm about to go to to Attica. I'm going to be sentenced tomorrow for 7 to 15 years, my second time for extortion. And he said, my wife begged me, just come to church one last time, and then you can get in the car, and you can take your bags, and you can flee to Mexico. And he said, the car's packed. That's where I'm heading right now. But he said, I've, I've come to Christ tonight. I can't run. I need to face my, my penalty. And so he went to face the sentencing the next day and that's what he got seven to 15 years and they packed him off to Attica. About a year later, we get a call from the chaplain. At Attica at the time. His name was, this is a great name, is an Eligius Rayner. I love a name like that. And, uh, Dr. Rayner called and he said, uh, do you know a guy by the name of Roy Keyes? We said, yeah. And he said, well, this guy is pestering me to death that he wants your quartet to come and sing at the prison. We said, well, let him pester. That's, uh, I have no desire to go to Attica. Thank you very much. And, uh, he said, no, he said, we really want to have you guys down and the whole series of events that took place. But when we got in the prison and we got through the numerous different doors and they take you to the auditorium, which is in the heart of the prison, you wish it was kind of on the wings, but you're in the center of everything. And there we are in the center and we're locked in a hallway while they're marching one set of prisoners out and marching another set in. And we're just, it's very nervous and upsetting in there at that point. And, uh, and, because, uh, you know, my gift is the gift of being a wimp. And um, and all of a sudden, this guy comes up to us in his prison garb. It's Roy Keyes. And he throws his arms around us, and there's tears streaming down his face. And he said, I am the freest I have ever been in my life. He pretty much had the run of the place for the next couple of years. He had his own set of keys, he had a private office, he had access to a phone. And Dr. Rayner said, this guy is just sterling, it's amazing. And Roy repeated that when we went back another year later. I'm free, because he was free from his guilt and his shame in Christ. He was free from what he knew would be the penalty of his sin and he was being delivered from the power of sin in his everyday life and he was looking forward to that day when the presence of sin would be eradicated. We want earthly and political and societal freedom and those are wonderful things, unspeakable blessings, but it is nothing compared to freedom from sin in Christ. That's the real freedom. These are all tastes, foretaste, tokens... And we will give our lives for the tokens and not for the real thing. We'll fight political anarchy and do nothing about our own sin. (laughs) Amazing. We'll raise funds and go on political campaigns to preserve our human freedoms and put no thought and effort into conquering the things that have conquered us with the chains of sin. But what if that desire for societal freedom and live and die in a political regime that offers no freedom? What if you're one of those who's in China right now, or, or one of those that's in Saudi Arabia or another country where you have don't have that freedom to walk with Christ? What if that desire is never met? Can you still not worship God by laying freedom at His feet and surrendering it to Him in worship and recognizing that it's only a token of the truth that's in Him? And so Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, well, then you'll be free indeed. And it is for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, to legalism, and to the way that sin works its way out. How about possessions? Is that your gold? This actually is my storage unit. He made all and He's over all. All we have is His. He made it and He grants us use of it for now until we come into the eternal possession of it in heaven. So can't we lay those possessions at His feet to do as He sees fit in His perfect wisdom and in His inscrutable love toward us? Is any earthly possession? Really more valuable than dwelling in his house with him. And can't we lay that at his feet as an act of worship? This is valuable to me, my house. But Lord, it's your house. And it's only a a picture, a token. And dwelling with you for eternity is the real thing. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's vanity. Whatever it is you think is your wealth it's outside of Christ and when Jesus says fear not little flock it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom why would you say I want a house when you can have the whole kingdom aren't we dumb sin is so irrational at times isn't it maybe your wealth your pride your What you count really high is intellect and wisdom. In worship, we willingly lay our intellect at His feet, acknowledging that there are things in Him that are above our understanding and reasons that we won't understand in this life, mysteries that are yet to be unfolded, but all that is found in Him, we can trust Him with, and we can trust Him with what we don't know because of what we do know who and what he is. The Christian doesn't ignore his intellect, but he learns to submit it to God's revelation and then use it accordingly. You never check your brain at the door. Gray matter is the most underused spiritual gift any of us have. We need to use it. But we use it knowing that it's illuminated by the revelation that he gives us in his word. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Paul writes and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why do some things in this life make sense? I don't know. I haven't understood them in the context of Christ yet. But when we do, we'll get it. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. How about sight? One of my greatest fears is going blind someday. I love to read. I love Beauty and I enjoy the freedom that sight gives. I, I see as my dad's eyesight is failing, that it offers him less and less freedom, and I fear that. And I recognize that I too need to come and to give him my sight and offer it to him. How? By setting my eyes, by using them as often as I can on what is good and holy. To drink in as much of the word as I can, while I can, and to use the present gift in worship to him knowing that when I leave this body, even if it is before the resurrection, now you have to think about this. Augustine mused on this in great detail. What happens when you leave this body and you go to be in the presence of the Lord and you don't have a body? Can you see God? Yes, without eyes. How? Who knows? Augustine says it's just immediate perception of Him on every level. So can I trust Him with my sight here and now? Can I offer that to Him and use it for His glory? Can I, I leave it with Him? Because we'll have that sight that doesn't require eyes. Because we'll see Him as He is. That's what it says in First John. We're God's children now, but what we will is not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. Amazing! But if I if I don't look at this if I don't look at that I'll somehow be bereft of something hogwash the great vision is yet to come how about sound i think of our good friend tom who's often down here who has no ability to hear anymore lost his hearing at an early age many of you know him and know him well i wonder what must that be like for him to be able to lay his hearing on the altar and say to God, it was yours to dispose with as you saw fit. And I can trust you because the hearing of glorious things is yet to come. Earthly hearing was only a a taste. Paul heard things it wasn't even lawful to repeat when he was caught up into the third heaven. So can you worship Him now in what you hear? Can you offer Him your ears to drink in the sounds of worship and beauty and to give Him our ears and to honor Him in their use? To hear others pray like we did this morning and to hear God's Word read and to hear it preached and to hear others sing the songs of Zion that tell of the goodness and greatness and wonders of Christ above the panic and the worry and the vulgarity of this world. Maybe Touch is a supreme thing to you. I'm going to move past that because we already mentioned it. It's a great blessing to be touched in this life. To be gently and lovingly held. I value that. Those who were lepers in the Bible longed so desperately to have someone touch them physically. Can't we give this to him as well? Maybe maybe this is what you've longed for all your life. Can I just, Lord, have someone to hold and can you bring that to him this morning in worship and lay it at his altar and say, this is yours, it's valuable to me, but I give it to you to dispose with as you see fit. What will serve you best? Knowing that, that there is this amazing reality of God in Christ, as was given to us in Isaiah 40, that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms and will carry them in his bosom. I had the great privilege of filling in at a church for about a year in the inner city. And one of the joys of that was in virtually every church service, somebody walked in off the street. Most often high sometimes prostitutes who were looking to just get warm for a few minutes. We had a guy come in one night, and he just looked deep. And we had the privilege of talking with him later and praying with him, and he had a host of problems. And then when we were done, I hugged him. And he just burst out into tears, and he sobbed. He said, I'm HIV positive. No one's hugged me for a long. I don't know how long that was going to remain the case. How they treated those things and dealt with them changed. But maybe maybe that's your great longing. And maybe that's a place, an act of worship for you. To leave that in His hands. Pleasure is another place. I'm going to run by this one quickly. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Will you really give yourself to chasing down fleeting temporary pleasures here that are only tastes of the great pleasures to come in his presence? Can't you give that to him? Oh, if I don't have this one thing, I'll be an incomplete human being. No, you won't. No, you won't. For many a man, it's notoriety and respect. Many a man mourns and grieves and chafes because he he doesn't get the respect he believes is due from his wife or his children or his fellow workers. He's never recognized for what he really is in this life. Maybe today you need to lay that on his altar in worship and say, this is important to me, but it's up to you to dispose of it as you see fit. Can you fix on the fact that he knows you and honors you himself? That he promises, however bereft of the foretaste we might be here in this life, the day will come when in the unimaginable humility that's described for us in the gospel, on his part he'll serve us. Can you give him that gold today? Some of you guys I know are going to struggle with that. It's important to you. When the 72 returned from going out and preaching and doing miracles, they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, "I know. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you, but nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We don't know the names of those 70 men. None of us. They're not even recorded in the Bible. We don't know them. And he said, it doesn't matter if nobody else knows you or recognizes you. It matters that I do. And that your name's written in my book. Can we give that to him, men, as our gold? When we're saying, wife, respect me. Children, respect me. No. What if they never do? We'll offer it to him in worship. Take that gold and put it on his altar. Blessed are those servants. This is astounding. If this weren't in the Bible, I would not repeat the concept. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. This is in reference to his own return. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and will have them servants recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's the authentic. That's the authentic. And if no human being gives you the respect you think you deserve in this life, lay it at his altar. Offer it up as worship. Give that gold away. There's something far more precious to be had. I've got two more and I'll close. I know we've run long, but these are important things. To be loved. To be cherished. Maybe the lack of being loved and cherished has so plagued you, even though you're in a marriage. It's so plagued you in this life. Its absence is so keenly felt that life almost seems not worth living. And I'm going to ask you to come to Him today and lay that down before Him. To trust His Word that He loves and cherishes you. And that the ache you feel cannot be truly met by anyone in this life anyway. It must be met in Him. It must. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to Children's children, the Lord appeared from far away. And what did He cry out? I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. And then this astounding reality that Jesus can say, as the Father has loved me, as amazing and unbelievable and beyond scrutiny is the divine love of the Father for the Son of God, That's how I've loved you. So abide in that. (laughs) I know that may be a big thing to lay on the altar today. Worship Him with your gold. Worship Him with your gold. And lastly, purpose or significance. All of us want to have impact, we want to have purpose, we want to know that our life had meaning, we we did something. Many of us are trying to leave our mark in this world and maybe that's what you're striving for. And what can possibly be more significant than being called to be a co-laborer with Christ? And to serve in this way. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And here's purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Isn't it significant to step into the eternal plan of the living God as He's carrying out what He's doing in all of heaven and earth and that you have a part in that, Christian? Man, if that isn't significant, I don't know what is. But if this is what you're striving for, to make your mark in this world, to find your purpose, then I'm going to ask you today to lay that down at His feet. Worship Him with your gold. Take that precious thing that you have that is so precious to you and lay it at His feet so that your significance will be located in entering into His plan and purposes. And the mere grains of gold that earthly purpose has for you are just symbols. For we're God's fellow workers. You're called to co-labor with Christ in His eternal redemptive plan. If there is anything more significant than that, you're going to have to tell me what it is. The Bible says this is it. And yet, and yet, we'll treat that as though it's nothing. Because we want men's, want to find my significance among men. Find it in Him. Worship Him by giving back to Him the most valuable thing. That dream, that desire, that whatever which you cherish above all others, and which the lack of leaving you feeling robbed and sad, knowing that the true and absolute value is actually in Him and in His glory. And we give these things to Him because He gave them to us in their limited fashion as promises and tokens and symbols. And The fullness of them will be ours in Him. Glory. Give Him your gold. Worship Christ by laying what is most valuable to you at His feet to be used as He sees fit. Honor Him with it. Trust Him with it. And in that day, you will have the substance rather than the shadow in Him. Now that's the essence of true worship. That's real worship. It's not doing things to manipulate, it's not trying to get your way, it's 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 not even just giving in the verbal sense. It's giving him your gold and I would ask you today what gold are you keeping back from him? What is that gold that you keep hiding for yourself? That you've never understood is just a token and that is all found in Him. Father, we see this amazing example here in Your Word, and it's a bit overwhelming. All of us have our prizes. All of us have our our delights. All of us have our desires. All of us have those things that are so meaningful to us. But I pray today that we will understand what it means to give them all to You. Not to lose them, but to recognize that they're only tokens. And to give them to You so that we have the fullness of them in glory. But to honor You with them. To show that there's nothing more valuable than You, Yourself. And that having You, knowing You, walking with You, serving You is worth more than anything the world can possibly give or promise. Lord, I know there are those here who aren't Christians today because the gold that they refuse to offer up at Your altar is their own self-righteousness, their belief that they're okay as is, and the humbleness it will take to acknowledge that they need Your saving grace. By Your Spirit, move them past that today to call out to Christ for His mercy. For you forgive and cleanse and make new. And for my brothers and sisters here, may we enter a whole new era of worship in giving up to you those things that we have placed such a high premium on, forgetting that the genuine is all wrapped up in Christ. Take us back to Him, we pray, in His name.
1: See how mercy has come to us. Sinners who deserve the cross. In our darkness, in our shame. It's a wonder that he came.